0: For those who weren't here this morning, I'm Barry Pavel, I'm the uh, the Atlanta Council Vice President and Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Thank you very much for coming uh, to this event. Uh, Just a quick recap from some highlights that I heard from the panels Um, this morning. I think we heard from General Cartwright a lot of discussion of some of the new technologies that may or may not uh, have an impact in about 10 years time and, of course, the increasing role and importance of, of missile defense in extended deterrence, uh, in particular in key regions. Uh, we had a very active Europe panel about, about the new security environment there and how should the United States and the rest of the NATO alliance think about Russia, even though the uh, European-phased adaptive approach was designed and deployed to deal with the uh, Iranian ballistic missile threat. Um, And then we had a very interesting panel, I thought, on the Gulf and the Middle East that looked at progress towards a a regional architecture um, with the Iran nuclear deal potentially looming, how that might impact um, missile defense and broader cooperation um, and related matters. And now we'll turn to um, a a really uh, um, important discussion with Principal Deputy Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Brian McKeon. Um, the second uh, highest ranking uh, policy official in the Pentagon to hear his thoughts and the U.S. government's perspective on the challenges posed by ballistic missiles to the homeland, to our allies and partners, and the efforts that Washington is leading to mitigate this challenge and to uh, more effectively deal with it and continue the progress that's been made over several administrations on missile defense. Very briefly, um, I think you have um, uh, Mr. McKeon's biography. He assumed the responsibilities of the Principal Deputy Under Secretary shortly after his confirmation on July 28th of last year, so almost a year uh, in the job. He advises the Under Secretary of Defense and the Secretary on all matters pertaining to the development and execution of U.S. national defense policy and strategy. He has a lead role in the Department of Defense on matters concerning deterrence, and missile defense, Uh, previously he served as Deputy Assistant to the President, Executive Secretary of the National Security Council, and Chief of Staff for the National Security Council at the White House, a position he held from 2012 to 2014. Prior to that, he was Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President from 2009 to 2012, when when Brian and I worked together um, on this issue, among others. And also, uh, prior to that, he was deputy staff director and chief counsel for the Democratic members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee from 1997 uh, all the way through his appointment to the White House. Uh, Mr. McKeon's remarks are titled, Missile Defense Collaboration in an Age of Turmoil. And without further ado, uh, please uh, please welcome uh, Mr. McKeon.
1: Thank you very much, Barry, uh, and thank you for having me here. It's good to see some former colleagues like Barry, uh, who, as he said, we worked together at the White House in the first term. Uh, Ian Brzezinski, who uh, we worked together in the Senate. He worked for the other senator from Delaware, Bill Roth, and then for the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Helms, when I was working for Senator Biden, uh, bipartisan family of public service. Brzezinski is his brother. is on on the Democratic side working for the president, uh, now as our ambassador to Sweden. And obviously, you know uh, the important contributions his father has made to the the country. So I very much appreciate being here today. Uh, The Atlantic Council has brought together a very impressive group of experts on missile defense. And it's my honor to be here to talk about our administration's approach to it. At the outset, I will confess that I'm not really an expert. I'm kind of a generalist. Uh, and I could not explain many of our technologies. I've had people try to explain them to me, but uh, if you really want to talk to a missile defense expert, we'll get Admiral Searing up here. Uh, I'm certainly not as knowledgeable as your morning keynote speaker, General Cartwright. I spent a lot of time with him in the Situation Room in the first term. He speaks very softly in that setting, but he always said something that was worth listening to. I have another confession I would make. Earlier in my career, I was a bit of a skeptic on missile defense and supported the work of uh, a senator from Delaware that I mentioned named Biden, who, like a lot of Democrats in the Congress in the 1980s and 1990s, was concerned about the prospect or the impact of national missile defense on strategic stability with the Soviet Union and later the Russian Federation. We've come a pretty long way from those debates, and the threat to our country, to our deployed forces and to our allies and partners has advanced considerably. I can tell you there is no debate within the administration about maintaining the President's commitment to missile defense. Indeed, in the past few years, the President has committed to significantly expand the number of ground-based interceptors in the face of the increased threat from North Korea's nuclear and missile program. And the administration has actively advanced our regional programs in concert with our partners consistent with the strategy we laid out in the Ballistic Missile Defense Review issued in the President's first term. It's that strategy and our efforts to implement it that I'd like to talk to you about today. The foundation for our current missile defense policy remains as it was articulated in 2010 in the Ballistic Missile Defense Review, or BMDR. For homeland defense, it provides we will defend against a limited ICBM attack and stay ahead of the North Korean and Iranian long-range missile threats. The review made plain that our regional strategy would be based on partnership. Specifically, it set forth three key principles. First, that we will work with allies and partners to strengthen regional deterrence architectures based on the foundation of strong cooperative relationships and appropriate burden sharing. Second that we will pursue a phased adaptive approach to missile defense within each region tailored to the threats and circumstances unique to that region. And third, because the potential demand for missile defense assets over the next decade may exceed supply, the United States will develop capabilities that are mobile and relocatable. Despite significant changes in the international environment since 2010, including the Arab Spring and Russia's illegal actions in Ukraine, The core principles of the BMDR have held up pretty well and were recently revalidated in the Quadrennial Defense Review conducted last year. The United States has taken a number of steps to strengthen our homeland missile defense capabilities, primarily in response to the growing ICBM threat from North Korea. We are increasing the number of ground-based interceptors from 30 to 44 by 2017, and we have deployed a second forward-based radar in Japan which will provide improved tracking of North Korean ballistic missiles. We've also deployed a THAAD system to Guam to better protect U.S. territory in the Pacific. Our ground-based mid-course defense system is designed to protect the United States from a limited ICBM attack. It is not designed to defend against a large-scale attack from Russia or China, a scenario we view as an extremely remote possibility given the credibility of our deterrent. Our homeland defenses are designed to prevent potential adversaries like Iran and North Korea from seeking to coerce or intimidate us with long-range ballistic missiles and to reassure our allies that our security commitments are reliable. And, of course, the interceptors also provide a defensive capability in the event that deterrence fails. Our current focus, in addition to adding interceptors at Fort Greeley, Alaska, is to increase the reliability and effectiveness of the homeland missile defense system. We plan to build a new kill vehicle for the ground-based interceptor and improved discrimination capabilities of currently de- pro- deployed radars. We are also pursuing a new long-range discrimination radar that will enable us to keep pace with more complex threats in the next decade. Finally, we continue to study the best locations for an additional missile defense interceptor site in the eastern United States. Identifying potential sites and preparing an environmental impact statement will shorten the time required to deploy interceptors to a new site should we decide that we need one. Outside the United States, we must work with allies and partners around the world. We cannot do it alone. As the BMDR underscored, our partners must also share the burden and work together. Let me take you on a bit of a geographic tour to highlight some of this work. In the Asia Pacific region, working with the United States, Japan has built its own layered missile defense system consisting of Aegis BMD ships equipped with SM 3 interceptors. It has Patriot batteries, early warning radars, and a sophisticated command and control system. We are also partnering with Japan to co develop the Standard Missile 3 Block 2A interceptor. I want to congratulate Admiral Searing, the director of our Missile Defense Agency, and the team from U- the United States and Japan on the success of recent SM 3 Block 2A tests, which was a success. This result is a testament of the expertise and collaboration between the United States and Japan. The capabilities of this new missile not only offer benefits for the Asia-Pacific regional defense, but for Aegis BMD ships and Aegis Ashore systems worldwide. The Republic of Korea also has missile defense capabilities, including its own Patriot batteries and a network of sea and land-based sensors. The Korean government recently announced that it will seek additional funding next year for the Korean Air and Missile Defense. We welcome the ROK's commitment to enhance its own systems. There has been a lot of speculation in the press about whether we intend to seek to deploy the THAAD system to Korea. It's no secret that we are looking at this option, but we have made no decisions, and before proceeding with such a decision, we would undertake close consultation with our treaty partner in Seoul. Finally, the United States and Australia also have longstanding security partnership to include an agreement on missile defense R&D. In addition, we continue to participate in ongoing discussions on the potential Australian contributions to regional ballistic missile defense. In Europe, missile defense protection serves as a central feature of our transatlantic policy, supports our defense commitments to NATO, and enhances the Alliance's longstanding efforts for increased interoperability, effectiveness, and burden-sharing. Since President Obama announced the European-Phased Adaptive Approach in 2009, we have made substantial progress toward providing ballistic missile defense to NATO Europe against threats from the Middle East. Many of you surely remember the controversy that attended the announcement in 2009. There was some doubt among many in Congress, in Europe, and commentators in this city about the strength of our commitment. My boss at the time, the Vice President, made a trip soon after to Central Europe to calm the waters, and I believe Barry was on the trip, then in his role as the Senior Director for Defense Policy at the NSC. To those who still may doubt our commitment, consider these facts. Since 2011, working with NATO, we've operated a forward-based radar in Turkey. We've worked closely with our ally in Spain to shift the home ports for four Aegis BMD destroyers to the naval facility in Rota, Spain. These multi-mission ships will support the NATO missile defense mission, as well as other U.S. and NATO maritime missions. The final destroyer w- will deploy before the end of this calendar year. The construction of the Aegis shore site in Romania is on track and the site will be operational by the end of this year. We will commence construction of the Aegis Shore site in Poland next year and complete it by the end of 2018, assuming continued funding for the program. Simply put, our missile defense deployments to Europe are happening, and they are being built on a firm foundation of partnership with our NATO allies, who are also making significant contributions to the European missile defense mission. As I noted, Romania, Spain, and Turkey all host U.S. missile defense assets and provide external security for those facilities. Beyond hosting the second Aegis shore site, Poland recently announced a multi-billion dollar acquisition of the U.S. Patriot Systems. Several other allies are in the process of considering purchase of air and missile defense capabilities. Germany recently announced the selection of the medium extended air defense system for its missile defense, and Turkey continues to review options for an air and missile defense system. We will continue to encourage our NATO allies to do more to cooperate and invest in missile defenses that will contribute to alliance security. Let me pause here to briefly address the continuing charge by Russian officials that Aegis Ashore violates the INF Treaty. As you know, last year the United States formally declared the Russian Federation had violated its obligations under the treaty due to its flight test of a ground-launched cruise missile capable of flying greater than the INF limit of 500 kilometers a capability that increases Russia's ability to strike critical targets in Europe. We have attempted to engage our Russian treaty partners since we discovered the violation without success. Instead of addressing or even acknowledging our concerns, Russia has attempted to deflect attention from its violation by claiming that we are in violation of the treaty. Specifically, Russia contends Aegis Ashore is capable of launching Tomahawk cruise missiles in violation of INF. This contention is false. Aegis Ashore is only capable of launching missile defense interceptors such as the SM 3, which are not subject to the treaty. While the Aegis system aboard Aegis destroyers and cruisers can fire cruise missiles, this capability is not part of Aegis Ashore. The system may look a lot like the system that's on a cruiser, but it lacks the essential elements for launching a land attack cruise missile, including software, fire control hardware, and additional support equipment. It's never been tested for, nor is it capable of launching a tomahawk, and therefore, we believe it is compliant with the treaty. I would add that Russia's other claims of violations relating, which relate to armed UAVs and the use of targets for our missile defense systems are clearly and demonstrably false. We continue to urge Russia to come into compliance with the treaty, and if it does not, we will take measures to prevent Russia from gaining a significant military advantage from its violation. In the Middle East, we are working with a number of Gulf Cooperation Council nations on missile defense. The United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait either already own or are purchasing new BMD systems. The reported Saudi intercept of a ballistic missile launched by the Houthi rebels this month serves as an example of the value of our partnerships. Last month, the President welcomed the GCC partners to Camp David, where they discussed a new strategic partnership to enhance security cooperation in areas such as ballistic missile defense. They agreed to work toward establishing a multilateral GCC ballistic missile early warning system, which will, over time, enhance the effectiveness of the missile defense systems they are deploying in the region. If successful, these efforts will move us closer to the goal of an interoperable GCC system. BMD cooperation also remains an important part of our unshakable commitment to the security of the State of Israel. In addition to foreign military financing The United States has provided more than $3 billion in missile defense assistance to Israel since 2001. We have worked with Israel to build help them develop a multi-layered system that includes Iron Dome, Arrow, and David Sling. These systems are a key component to ensuring Israel's security from a range of threats in the region. Finally, BMD engagements with their allies and partners are a valuable opportunity to improve our interoperability and engage in mill-to-mill activities. The United States leads and participates in a range of bilateral and multilateral exercises with many of our regional partners in in exercises such as Keen Edge, an exercise with Japan, uh, and a new multilateral tabletop with the GCC called Nimble Shield. These exercises are valuable in helping us better understand the contributions that missile defense can make in advancing our regional security policies as well as those of our allies and partners. As more states seek to use ballistic missiles as a means to achieve their national goals, missile defenses will be expected to cover more area and with greater effectiveness. To date, our regional defense interceptors have excellent test record. THAAD, since the restructuring of the program in 2005 and its return to flight testing, is 11 for 11. Aegis BMD and Patriot PAC-3 are 21 for 25. These are pretty impressive scores given the complex challenges associated with trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. And considering what we're protecting, we must strive always to do even better. As with all high-end technology like missile defense, containing costs while delivering effective capability will remain a challenge. These assets are expensive and generally more expensive than the missiles they are built to defeat. They are also effective and as a result are in high demand from our combatant commanders. And that's a demand we simply cannot afford to meet everywhere all the time. There's an ongoing discussion about whether this reality puts us on the wrong side of the cost curve. Fiscal pressures have already forced us to work harder to control costs, and we're pursuing new technologies to give us options left of launch. But as the Ballistic Missile Defense Review noted, in the regional context, we can't always negate every adversary missile. Our forces, it said, quote, must be able to protect what we and our partners value. These include the economic and political targets that an enemy may want to put at risk, as well as military capabilities essential for prevailing in a conflict." End of quote. Protecting these assets helps reinforce deterrence and complicates the challenge for a potential adversary. It's also worth emphasizing here that missile defense does not stand alone in the regional context. In all of these regions, we have a full mix of capabilities, in addition to missile defense, to protect our partners and uh, and our deployed forces. Missile defense adds value to these capabilities. They help remove an adversary's ballistic missile escalation options while providing time for diplomacy and helping to neutralize the coercive potential of ballistic missiles. They also impose costs on ballistic missile acquisition as an adversary can no longer assume that all ballistic missile strikes will succeed. Finally, missile defenses help to reassure allies that the United States remains committed to their security. So there you have it from skeptic to convert in just a couple of decades. (laughs) It's an exciting time to be in the field of national security. Some days are a little bit too exciting for my taste. Uh, We've got a lot of challenges in the world. Uh, One of these challenges is the proliferation of the missile threats regionally as well as globally. We are making important advances in missile defense, and we appreciate the cooperation of our partners as well, not just uh, foreign government partners, but our industry partners, some of whom are represented here today. We will continue to lead in this effort, but we cannot succeed alone in it. Collaboration will be required, and we will keep asking our partners to do their share. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thanks very much, Brian. It was truly a uh, tour of the world, um, and really, really very much sort of frames the panels we've had here so far, and it's also really nice to uh, being, having a conversation with you outside of the crush of the Situation Room, albeit on the same issues that we uh, spent quite a bit of time on. Um, so I wanted to first sort of uh, address, h- hear from you about the, the European missile, missile Defense approach. I mean, we, as you mentioned, we developed, uh, the administration developed the European Phase Adaptive Approach and announced it in September of 2009. And certainly since then, the security environment in Europe has really changed significantly. And that architecture was focused on on a possible threat from Iran, both in capacity and orientation and in the political arrangements and everything else. I mean, the alliance adopted this to deal with Iran. And so what I wanted to just get from you, and I know there's there's, um, uh, no new policy yet out there on how to on, on uh, what to do regarding this missile architect- missile defense architecture as it relates to Russia. But how does the administration see this? And I th- are there tensions sort of, uh, you know, related to the strategic nuclear balance versus de- de- uh, defending territories, populations, and fielded forces, but how, how should, can you help us think about how the administration views the question of missile defense in Europe in light of a renewed uh, military threat from Russia? So, Barry, as you
1: said accurately, the European phase adaptive approach was never aimed at Russia. It was aimed at a threat from the Middle East. uh, And that remains the case. We've explained to the Russians since 2009 that this system is not about them uh, and has no capacity to deal with their strategic deterrent. Uh, Jim Miller, one of my predecessors, I think met with his counterparts multiple times in the first term try to even explain the physics and the science of it, why our systems could not catch theirs essentially. Um, I don't think they believe us, but that, that remains our view and our position and uh, that has not changed. I think uh, in a broader sense, what I'd say about this, Barry, is Russia's actions in Ukraine uh, starting last year and continuing uh, to this day uh, and some of the saber rattling they're doing has obviously caused NATO and the NATO Alliance to think differently about Russia than it has for the last 20 years. The Secretary of Defense is in Brussels today for the NATO ministerial. And I'm sure it's a lot of part of the conversation, both in the council uh, and in, in the margins and in his uh, bilateral meetings with his counterparts. And so as a general matter, both here in, in Washington and, and in Brussels, we're thinking differently about Russia than we have for the last 20 years. So a lot of thinking going into planning of how we fulfill the commitment of uh, Article Five of the North Atlantic Treaty and uh, how we as an alliance, not just the United States, are prepared to do that. Um, as I na- noted in my remarks, the, the Polish government is investing a great deal in integrated air and missile defense modernization. I believe they've committed $10 billion. I'm not sure how much of that will go to our friends in, in, in industry here for the Patriot. I'm not, I forget the dollar figure that's devoted to that, but it's a big number. and. We're asking our other partners to do the same. Um,
0: I think I'll stop there. It's, it's, so it's ongoing, and you know, perhaps we'll see um, coming out of the defense ministerials and other, other meetings. I thought it, this is a good time, too, to shift a little bit southeast. We have uh, a deadline next week regarding the um, P5-plus-1 negotiations with Iran about their nuclear program the alliance's missile defense uh, architecture was really focused on Iran. Um, Do you see any uh, impact? Let's say there's a deal, which I know the administration is pushing very hard, working with its allies and partners towards a deal. If there's a deal, do you see that impacting the missile defenses either in Europe or in the Gulf? Or again, how is the administration sort of conceiving of the post-missile defense policy questions, uh, assuming that a deal is is indeed completed.
1: I don't think it changes our outlook for the requirements for missile defense, either in Europe or in the Middle East. Uh, the Iranians have quite an ample supply of short and medium-range missiles, and they continue to pursue longer-range missiles. So I think we see a continued need for the program, both in Europe and with our Middle East partners, as I mentioned in the in my remarks at the Camp David summit, it was a subject of conversation, trying to encourage our Gulf partners to cooperate together. They haven't always been so keen to do so. They have their own internal differences within the region, uh, but they certainly see the threat uh, from Iran continuing, even if there is a successful nuclear negotiation. In a lot of other areas, it's the missile threat that they pose. Their actions in uh, supporting terrorist activities or support for. Various groups in the, in the region. So there's a lot that we remain concerned about in terms of Iran's behavior, uh, quite apart from the nuclear
0: deal. And I don't think that
1: getting a deal is not going to change that reality.
0: I see. And you, you mentioned Camp David, and I uh, we we spent quite a bit of time on the run up to and um, uh, discussions after the May May uh, 14th, I believe, Camp David uh, summit between the president and and Gulf leaders. And I wanted to. Um, uh, give the administration some credit here, sort of in the in the run-up to it. There was a lot of angst about the um, US policy in the region. And then since then, uh, we've been hearing a lot more positive reaction from uh, the Gulf countries that were there. The issue I wanted to focus on, though, was um, sort of the, the work plan that the president and his counterparts um, uh, really initiated and uh, this was touched on in the joint statement coming out of the, the Camp David summit. And how, you, you, sort, you sort of mentioned it in your remarks, but how do you see potentially this uh, work agenda coming out of Camp David? Um, not just continuing the very sort of slow incremental progress over the course of a couple of decades, and our previous panel addressed it on missile defense, but do you see this sort of Jump-starting it, you mentioned the possibility of a, a multilateral approach in your remarks, and I was wondering if you could give us some sense of the trajectory we might expect, uh, the progress that might be made between now and when the when the leaders next meet, which, which I believe will be in about a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is not a, a new thing that we've tried to encourage the interoperability among the GCC countries, uh, not just in missile defense, but in other security areas, Secretary Hagel also pursued it in a GCC ministerial during his tenure. Uh, And I think it'll be, you know, it's hard to predict how how it will go because we can't want it more than them. And they're going to have to make some decisions to invest in a a Mm -hmm. common architecture that is integrated and talks to each other. And so we can help facilitate that and encourage them and continue to provide whatever advice and technology will advance that prospect. A team went out. to the region not long after the Camp David summit from state defense to begin a number of conversations on some of the security ideas that were discussed at the summit. And I can tell you, certainly in OSD policy, our Middle East team uh, is quite seized with it. And very, very busy engaging with all of our partners in the region. Uh, my immediate boss, Christine Wermuth, will be out in the region uh, later this month as well, not not only focused on that issue, but.
0: Great, all right, so we'll, we'll, be, we'll be watching closely and um, looking forward to the progress. I'll cover one more region, and then would love to uh, engage the audience uh, in our remaining time with questions for the Principal Deputy undersecretary. And the region that's left is Asia. There's a lot of angst in Asia, uh, most um, prominently with some of China's um, uh, land reclamation efforts regarding the South China Sea. Um, how is the administration now conceiving of its missile defense capabilities uh, regarding China, even if policy is that they're, it's not relevant to the strategic nuclear balance and to, and to strategic nuclear deterrence regarding China, there is a latent capacity, and with China's uh, arsenal uh, not nearly as numerous as Russia's, it would seem that uh, this would be a bit more of a complex um, uh, set of questions for the administration to sort of uh, work through. So I, just if you could update us on how how the administration sees sort of the the missile defense equation with China.
1: In a a broad sense, we're obviously watching very closely China's military modernization uh, and its activities uh, in the South China Sea and in the maritime space. And the Chinese government was just here for extensive conversations with us in both the strategic and economic dialogue and the strategic security dialogue that accompanies that session. Our missile defense forces in the region, as you know, are primarily concerned about North Korea and and the threat uh, from the North Koreans, both to our partners in Japan and in in Korea. And of course, the threat to our homeland from uh, North Korea's ICBM capabilities that it's building and pursuing. Um, So in a broad sense, I would say we're thinking about China as a rising power and its military modernization program. And we always think ahead to the future about what that might mean, uh, but I don't think I'd want to get too specific about what that might mean for our missile defenses in the region. I think that's, we're not, we're not looking forward to any kind of conflict with China. That's not something we seek. Uh, we seek a peaceful rise of, of China. And tr- working with our Asian partners, um, addressing the security challenges in the South and East China Sea. Uh, so I think I'll just leave it there.
0: Okay. Now's the chance for some questions from the uh, audience, and I think I'll start in the very back with the gentleman uh, in the middle. If you could identify yourself and uh, ask succinct questions, that would be great.
2: Thank you.
1: Donghui Yu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. I just have a follow-up question on China. Uh, I know China right now is concerned about the uh, possibility that the expanding uh, missile defense system of the United States would target China and include Taiwan.
2: And on the other hand, the US is concerned about the increasing capability of the missile defense of China would compromise the deterrence of the US. So I just would like to know, what's your thought about that? What's the policy of the US missile defense uh, policy toward China? Thank you.
1: So as I said in my prepared remarks, our homeland defense system uh, based at Vandenberg Air Force Base in Fort Greeley, Alaska, is a limited defense system uh, against potential ICBM attacks. It's aimed at the threat from North Korea and the Aspirations for Iran for, for a long-range missile it has never been intended uh, or uh, aimed at defending against the Chinese or Russian deterrent. It, it could not defend against an overwhelming barrage from either of those countries. But it, we don't expect such an attack either. So that, that is the policy of the United States, that we have a limited ICBM system defending against North Korea and Iran.
0: Yes, over there. Hi, Scott Massioni with uh, Inside Defense. I think earlier this month, uh, Ashton Carter met with uh, some some uh, allies in uh, Stuttgart, Germany, about the possibility of putting in. Uh, ballistic missile defense and also maybe some land missiles in Europe to safeguard against Russia. Can you talk about maybe where those, uh, where that's kind of gone, what might be the next step in that, and and maybe any decisions they made?
1: The meeting referring to was secretary at the end of a, literally an around the world trip. He started in Hawaii uh, and kept going west. He went to the Shangri-La dialogue and then to India and Vietnam and then ended in stuttgart and that was at the headquarters of uh, european u.s european command and it was a meeting with other american officials there were no foreign counterparts there Uh, he asked various combatant commanders not just the head of ucom uh, but some other combatant commanders convened there and he also convened several u.s ambassadors uh, posted in the region to talk about the new reality we talked about earlier which is russia's activities in Europe and what that means for the alliance and how we should be thinking about it. So it was not a decisional meeting at at all. It was really, for him, the secretary still relatively new, just coming back into the department in February after being away for 13 months. And we didn't have Russia intervention in Ukraine happening when he left the department. So it was just really, for him, an educational effort to talk to senior leaders of both our department and the State Department about how how to think about
0: this challenge. Sounds like you shouldn't let him leave the department again. Um, Yes, we have a question in the front row here. Thank you. Uh, Joe Dyer, a uh, consultant in technology and and aerospace. You you spoke of your conversion from uh, doubter to supporter. Was that based on uh, dominantly the emerging threat, or was it based on the... Uh, advancements of technology and capability?
1: I think it's both. I think in the 80s and 90s well primarily particularly in the 80s when it first started as a big national program in the Reagan administration after his speech uh, on SDI in, in March of 1983 most Democrats including the one that I worked for in Congress were really focused on what does this mean for strategic stability vis-a-vis the Soviets and then as I recall, although I have trouble remembering what happened last week, much less 20, 28 <laughs> years ago, there were a lot of challenges with the technology in the early days, and, uh, but now the threat is much different. I don't think anyone in those days was thinking the North Koreans would really make this kind of advance uh, with the technology, and we've obviously gotten better at it. Uh, you know, what I'd say also is never bet against American scientists and technology advances. When, uh, when I was in the Senate in the late 90s, there was a debate about the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And you had two, two anomalies or two the different parties were on two different sides of a science question. The Democrats were on, the, on missile defense, skeptical that we could make it work. And that was in the missile defense context. In the CTBT context, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, there's a lot of skepticism of opponents of the treaty, most of them not in the Democratic Party, uh, about whether our scientists could sustain a nuclear stockpile without testing. And what our lab directors will now tell you, I know I'm getting off topic here, but I'm just making a broader point. (laughs) Our lab directors will tell you they've learned more from 20 years of the stockpile stewardship program than they did in 40 years of explosive testing about our nuclear weapons. So what I've learned from all that is never bet against American science. We'll figure
0: it out eventually.
2: Yes. Gentleman over here. My name is sung Ri with SBS Broadcasting System from South Korea. I have two questions. First is about the FAST system uh, just you uh, referred to briefly. Uh, Actually, I'd I'd like to ask you what you have in mind on the policy uh, of the possible deployment of FAST system on the Korean Peninsula why the, your final decision is delayed? Is, a factor, is there a factor of international political environment like China? Or uh, just logistically, you are not ready? And the second question is, is some uh, experts and analysts uh, issued a report that, uh, uh, urging uh, reintroducing United States tactical nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula to deter North Korean nuclear weapons. Is it a viable, thinkable option? On the first issue of the
1: THAAD in Korea, we don't have a lot of THADS in the United States Army. There's a limited number of uh, THAAD units. And so the secretary and the chairman uh, are constantly looking at that question of where we have a requirement for them. And the primary motivator for us, most of the time, in this instance, is protection of deployed forces. So if you look at where we have them, uh, that's usually why they're there. The US forces commander has to worry about the security of 28,000 military forces based in, in the Republic of Korea. So that's what would motivate him. And we need to have a conversation with our partners in Seoul about this. It's not about China. It's about protecting uh, our deployed forces from the North Korean missile threat. On the second issue of technical nuclear weapons in Korea, that's not something we're considering.
0: Yes, another question here in the second row. Hi, Victor Primov, FMS. Uh, could you please further expand uh, on the new Nibble Shield program for the GCC countries? What is it? How is it going to work? Is there going to be a GCC secretariat similar to the NATO commander? And does the no, uh, Nibble Shield give our GCC partners the authenticity of USA commitments to protect
2: them from Iranian nuclear threats?
1: Nimble Shield is just a tabletop exercise. I wouldn't ex- uh, overstate what it, what it is. We do a lot of exercises with our partners around the world, both in the field and. Uh, in a room like this, uh, doing tabletop activities, thinking through scenarios. Um, Many of the GCC countries, as I said, have various BMD capabilities, either Patriot uh, or other systems. And what we've tried to encourage them to do is to integrate them architecturally. Um, And first thing you would want to do is have the sensors talking to each other and then communicating back to each of the capitals. So that's the idea of this multilateral early warning system, have a common operating picture that the partners could share on a multilateral basis rather than just bilateral. They are so close together geographically, many of them that are on the, across the water there from Iran, it, it only makes sense for them to share what they're seeing. And that's, I, I couldn't speak for the GCC about whether they're talking, looking ahead to a secretariat
0: for this purpose. Just as a point of fact, there is a GCC secretary, but it's not only a military uh, um, gathering. I think we have time for one more question, if there is one. In light of that, uh, please join me in thanking the principal deputy Under secretary for coming. Thank you very much for listening. And if you can um, stay in your seats, we have the next panel, which will begin right away.